Well, already it's clear that I'm faced again with the daunting challenge of talking about the love of God. Many of you know I have a sermon in my imagination on the love of God that I've finally concluded is never going to get preached because it is not possible for one of my limited abilities to, I'm not sure it's humanly possible, frankly, to speak adequately of the love of God. This is not, many of you know also, I'll make an annual stab at it, and I hope after maybe 10 years I'll have sort of scratched a little bit on the surface of speaking about the love of God. This is not that annual sermon. This happens to be the next passage in the Gospel of John. Well, I'm not intending to preach every passage in the Gospel of John, we've come to the most famous verse, not only in the Gospel of John, but in the whole Bible, John 3.16. And how could I possibly pass over this classic and important text? Although, there's a sense in which I'm intimidated to try to preach on such a classic text, so it might have been tempting to skip over it, but I couldn't do that. I've never done an exposition of this very passage. I suppose over the years I've referenced John 3.16 hundreds, if not thousands of times, but to actually exposit this particular passage, I've not done that before, and like I say, I mean, there's a sense in which, what do you say? How can you possibly adequately speak to this? More so, how can you possibly adequately speak to the love of God itself? Who is sufficient for these things. I've said many times, really requires a poet, I think, to do this, and our songs help us. Great classic hymn, The Love of God. Third stanza, I think, captures just how inexpressible and indescribable the love of God is. Could we with ink the, the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The first stanza is a perfect lead into John 3.16. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. And then the chorus, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. God so loved the world. Let's turn now to John 3.16 and the following verses. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Please just note that. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. <clears throat> Excuse me. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Now note here, what is the very first word in this famous, most famous verse? Four. Now, if you grew up in church like I did, you memorized a lot of Bible verses. And you memorized a lot of Bible verses that start with the word for or the word therefore. And it, you just get used to hearing that. It starts to sound kind of biblical to start a verse like that. <laughs> the unfortunate reality is we, ignore, we, we learn to ignore those words. The very first word in our classic verse is for. What does that tell you? That tells you this is connected to what goes before it. It tells you it's a part of a context. It tells you that this verse does not stand alone. And what is the connection? Well, let's look back a little bit to see what's right before it. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And verse 13, well, let's pick it up at 14. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For, 
God so loved. Verse 16 is there to explain. Verses 14 and 15. Really, more fully, verse 16, our famous verse, which we mostly know out of its context, is the beginning of an exposition or a commentary on the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. So what we just read, 16 to 21, is really explaining or elaborating on or commentary on this discussion that you must be born again. We're going to take a look at that for just a few moments here to to establish the connection. There are two parts to the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Last week, we focused on part one. Part one is you must be born again. You have to be born a second time time. Now, there's always a temptation of the heart to preach that sermon again. I won't do it today, but please just hear it. And if you weren't with us last week, I just invite you to hear it even more so this morning. Because what that is saying is to a devoutly religious man, his biblical faith, or probably shouldn't use the word faith, his biblical knowledge, his biblical truth to which he adhered, and his biblical lifestyle was not enough. It will not gain anyone entrance into the kingdom of heaven. There is a second birth, another birth, a spiritual birth that we all must undergo. That's the first part of Jesus' challenge to Nicodemus. The second part starts in verse 9. Nicodemus asks a question, he's, he's just, how can this be? You're talking about a second birth, and I don't, I don't understand you. I don't understand how these things can happen. And Jesus then challenges him, you're the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? The second part now of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus is now going to address the main reason Nicodemus came in the first place. Remember, Nicodemus starts the conversation by saying, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God because nobody could do the things you're doing, the signs you're doing, unless God is with him. We recognize the markings, the signs, the indications that God is at work in your life. Obviously, the implied question, the lead there, where he's going with this is, so then, who are you? What's going on? How are we to understand what you are doing and your message and your, perhaps even your claim, who you are? Jesus is now going to address that. He's now going to come back to the real reason that Nicodemus has come to see him. But he does it kind of obliquely. He doesn't just say, okay, Nicodemus, let me tell you who I am. He's still challenging him on his lack of understanding, even though he is the scholar, teacher, scribe of Israel. He's challenging him that there are things about his Old Testament scriptures that he has not really fully grasped. And he's going to speak to him now, assuming that Nicodemus will know what he's talking about, and he's going to begin to speak to who he is. So first part of his message to Nicodemus is, you need to undergo the second birth. Second part of his address is, you need to come to terms with who I am. Now, it's, it's kind of tightly woven here, and like I said, it's sort of indirect. You kind of have to slow down and walk through it carefully to, to really get and sense and, and understand what Jesus is driving at. We, this is not the message for today, so I don't want to stay here real long, but let's just notice what he says. Verse 11, truly, truly. In other words, he's saying, I'm solemnly affirming to you now, Nicodemus. Please take this with the utmost seriousness. That's the third time in this conversation, as we have it recorded, that he says these words, truly, truly, I'm solemnly affirming this truth to you. And then he tells him, basically, look, I'm telling you what I'm telling you. I'm speaking to you on this subject of the new birth, the second birth, on the basis of firsthand knowledge and experience. Because I am one who has indeed been there. He says, you know, you're having trouble accepting and believing and receiving what I'm telling you. I'm telling you earthly things. I'm talking about things like birth and wind as as an analogy of the work of the Spirit. And you're struggling with that. What would you do if I really told you things of heaven? 
Nobody's been to heaven except the one who's come from heaven. And I'm speaking to you. I could speak to you of these things. And you'll notice how he identifies himself here. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Who? The Son of Man. Now, to us, that, yes, we've read the Gospels. We know Jesus often calls himself that. Turns out, if you weren't aware of it, that's his favorite title for himself. But Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, knows instantly who he's talking about. And maybe many of you do as well. There's a great vision in Daniel 7. One like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven to appear before the Ancient of Days and to this Son of Man is given the kingdom which will last forever. Clearly messianic. Clearly he is saying to Nicodemus, the one you see and read of in Daniel 7 is standing before you speaking. And you do not receive what he is saying. He says a second thing to Nicodemus. He says... Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Again, very familiar to him. That's an Old Testament account. Now again, we're not going to take a long time to, to break this down, but in Numbers chapter 21, you read about the time Israel is in the wilderness. They have not yet entered the, the promised land. In fact, they're not going to get there for quite a while because of their disobedience. Once again, they are grumbling against God and against Moses and saying, we wish we would have died in Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. We need Keith Green right now to sing us a song. <laughs> so you want to go back to Egypt and the temptation of the human heart still. They, they're grumbling for the umpteenth time. As you read through Exodus, the dramatic, amazing, indescribable plagues on Egypt, he's delivered them. And then he brings them out eventually to, to Mount Sinai and delivers the law to them there. And they see the powerful presence manifested in, in the earthquake and the fire and the cloud and all of those things. And still they just lapse back into saying, this is terrible. We were better off in Egypt. And so God is judging his people. He sent poisonous serpents or fiery serpents among them. And they were deadly. If you got bit by them, you lost your life. And he instructs Moses to put, uh, uh, make, make one out of bronze and to put it on a pole so that people, if they look to that, they're bitten and they look to that, they'll be healed and they will live. But Jesus is telling Nicodemus, I'm the son of man and I must be lifted up so that people can look to me and live. Now, Nicodemus would not have thought what you and I think, because when you hear Jesus lifted up, what's the first thing that comes in your mind? It's the cross, yes? By the way, Jesus is lifted up in two ways, the cross and, yes, his exaltation to the right hand of God. And we look to him exalted, and we live. See, this is a... Jesus is already beginning to make, even though here it isn't quite as direct and bold and outright, he is making audacious claims for himself. And Nicodemus knows precisely what he is talking about. And so that brings us to verse 16. And so far we've just been chewing on this little word for to make sure we see the connection and what's going on here. The Son of Man must be lifted up the way Moses put that serpent up so that people can look to the Son of Man and live for this reason. Here's the explanation. Here's so you can understand what this means. It's the love of God that has sent the Son of Man from heaven. It's the love of God that will lift him up so that he becomes the source of life to those who will look to him. And so here, John 3.16 begins, as I said, this explanation or this commentary on the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. One question, it's a secondary question, you don't have to, uh, it's not necessary to reach a, a final certain conclusion, but one question here is, where do the words of Jesus stop in this passage? Where does Jesus stop talking and John start commenting? Now, if you have a Bible with red letters in it, it's a modern Bible or a King James Bible, you've got red letters all the way to verse 21, almost certainly, meaning the translators took it that Jesus said all of this. The other view is in verse 16, John starts to write and explain and comment on the conversation. I 
lean this latter way, that this is now John writing, starting in verse 16. Even the scholars are divided on the question. But as you read this, you'll see that the theology of it and the way of looking at it seems to be looking backwards. And looking back, God gave his son. And it seems to be from a perspective of someone who's come to understand more than Nicodemus could possibly have understood at the time. But like I say, it's not a crucial question, but a point of interest. The explanation now that is, begins in verse 16 is this is all the love of God. The, the possibility of new birth or second birth and the sending from heaven of the Son of Man, lifting him up. That is explained by the love of God. came across a very interesting chart, and it's interesting when you do a Google search for John 3.16, how many times this particular chart appears. It's just an interesting chart, and it highlights, I think, and drives home to our hearts a sense of the, the greatness of what is being said in this classic passage. God, the greatest lover, so loved, the greatest degree, the world, the greatest number that he gave, the greatest act, his only son, the greatest gift, that whoever, the greatest invitation, believes the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest person, shall not perish, the greatest escape, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest destiny. I'd only make one comment on that last line. Just, just remember, because we've talked about this more than once, just remember that in the New Testament, and definitely in the Gospel of John, when, we talk, when it is talking about eternal life, it is not talking about where you go when you die. It is talking about a life that is created in you when you are born of the Spirit of God. It starts now. And unfortunately, we have, in my experience at least, and I, when I say we, I'm speaking very generally and very broadly, we have created a mindset that salvation is mostly about what happens to you after you die. So that people can pray prayers and receive Christ and then go on living their life for themselves virtually indifferent to Jesus and God. That is not eternal life. If someone does that, if they pray a prayer at the camp or in the Sunday school class and are led through that with their teacher, but it does not seem to change their relationship with Christ or produce in them a life that is being lived now, they don't have eternal life. It's not to judge and it's not to condemn. It's to care deeply. Because you don't want to give false assurance to people that they're in relationship with God when they are not. So that's just a little caveat on that last line there. But I think the chart just impresses upon us the greatness of God's love here and underscores what God has done for us. The love of God here in John 3.16 is seen especially in what God did and who he did it for. That's not the outline, don't worry about that, but just notice, the focus here is what God did and who he did it for. I say that in part this morning to make sure that we don't get distracted by theological questions that sometimes come up and can cloud our vision of this glorious truth that's being given to us here. The focus here is not who did Jesus die for, or are some people elect and other people not elect? That is not the focus. The focus here is on the love of God. And I want us to keep the focus where it belongs. I looked up a sermon. I'm not going to tell you who preached it. You know the name. And the preacher felt compelled to square the whoever believes with the doctrine of election. Now, I happen to agree and I thought he did an excellent job of what he was doing. That's the theology I hold. That's the theology this church holds. We are reformed. What I'm trying to say to you right now is 
Don't let those kinds of thoughts cause you to miss the glory of what's being said here. The glory here is God so loved this world. And that's what I want us to hear today. Because Christians even struggle to know and believe and feel loved by God. It so happens as we were in the car driving here, this came up. I, I, I didn't, wasn't really trying to, to, to you know, generate any conversation, but Roberta just said, you know, it, in my youth, the focus was mostly on like doctrine or truth. There wasn't much focus really or emphasis on the love of God. I had to say, uh, we, she and I grew up in the same denomination, not church, but denomination, and our churches were very similar in their values and their ways of going about ministry. And we both apparently had the same general experience. In fact, in my youth, God himself was not much focus. I remember asking one time when I was teaching a class in our church, I said, who is the forgotten person in Christianity? And what I was asking about was God. Very little focus on God himself. And then sometimes you've got Jesus. You've got to receive him. You've got to have a personal relationship with him. And then you just kind of put him on the shelf and get busy you know, doing your stuff. And never talk about him. Don't think that much about him. So we, have, we end up with an impersonal, personal relationship with Jesus. And what I'm desperate for us all, including my own heart, is to be deeply impressed and impacted by the fact that God loves you and God loves the world. Loves. That's the glory of this truth. That's the glory of the gospel. So, now let's talk about this verse, the intensity of God's love. For God so loved the world. It turns out the Greek word so, translated so here, is a lot like the English word. In other words, we could take this in more than one way. We could be saying God loved the world so, in this way. This is how God loved the world. And many take it that way. It's not wrong, but you can also take it the way I would take it, the way others take it. The company, for example, of Don Carson, D.A. Carson, in his commentary, understands it this way. God so loved the world. He loved the world so much. Speaking to the intensity of God's love. It really isn't going to change the message here either way you go because this love, when you look at it and when you really begin to take it in, is an intense and amazing and indescribable love. It's a giving love, a sacrificing love, a love that gives up the most precious thing there is to give. And so it is an intense love. Please note, this is not a philosophical kind of disposition this is not casual. This is not little. This is something so great do we dare to hope or dream that it could possibly be true. The love of God is greater than we dare to hope or dream. It's unexpected. It's astonishing. It's unbelievable in many ways. The intensity of God's love. God so loved. Loved the world to such a degree that he was willing to do this. Next, the object of God's love. God so loved what? The world. Now, you and I, especially we who are church people, who are so used to this verse, of course he loves the world. Come on. You know, that's taken for granted. Who's he talking to here? Or at least, well, Jesus wasn't talking in my estimation, was he? <laughs> but, but who is this written to? Who is this, who is this for? Who is this in the context of? That's the better way to say it. That's what I'm trying to say. Who is this in the context of? It's in the context of a Jewish leader. 
It was not customary, so far as we can tell, for the Jewish world to speak of God loving the whole world. Not to say they didn't think that or believe that necessarily, but it wasn't their way. They didn't talk that way. They didn't express it that way. Leon Morris, who wrote a great commentary on the Gospel of John, said it this way, the Jew was ready enough to think of God as loving Israel, but no passage appears to be cited in which any Jewish writer maintains that God loved the world. It is a distinctly Christian idea that God's love is wide enough to embrace all mankind. And then Morris quotes another commentator who is, his commentary is old and I don't own it, so I quote from Morris, the relation of the Holy One to his world is, as far as we know, never expressed by the term love. He means in ancient Jewish literature, rabbinic literature and the sort. And yet, this is what we find, what you and I just take for granted. We're so accustomed to it. God's love is for all. And as we look through the Gospel of John, what do we find? I mean, if we are Jewish, or if we were in the world of the early church, We might be more astonished to read this. It might strike us or surprise us a little bit more. John 1.29, where John is pointing to Jesus, describing him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 4.42, Jesus is the Savior of the world. John 12.47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The world. Notice that one. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. We'll come to that idea, that truth again in a moment. Now, the word world in the Bible, just like in our English language, is used in a lot of different ways. It can refer to the universe, it can refer to the planet. This is not describing God as an environmentalist. I do believe God cares about the environment, I do believe He cares about how we treat what He created. If you made something and I came along and trashed it, I don't think you'd be pleased with that. And God is not pleased if we trash his world. But that's not, I think, what John is describing here. The word world obviously refers to humanity, to mankind, to the human race. But what's particularly striking as we begin to get into a fuller understanding is that it's not just a general word for people, humanity, It is more specifically people who happen to be God's enemies, people who are in rebellion against him, people who have thrown off his rule, people who have rejected him as their God and as their king. You recall Sean preached not many weeks ago in Acts, referring to Psalm 2. Go back to Psalm 2. You can see the whole Bible there, the whole message of the word of God there. starts out with people throwing off the reign of God. And God's response is to do what? He's threatened by that, right? No, it says he laughs. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how this, you know, I try to visualize this and I think of God kind of chuckling a little bit. Like, really? <laughs> you know. It's like little ant on your sidewalk has got his fist up in your face and you're looking at him going, okay, <laughs> you know. But then what does God do in response to human rebellion? He does what John 3.16 says. He sends his son and anoints him king. And he says to the world, kiss the son before he is angry and you perish. Kiss the son. I send my son and he is going to reign over all of this. And if you are awake and wise, you will understand who he is and you will bow the knee to him. John 15 verse 18 shows us how John speaks of the world. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The world hated Jesus. And this wasn't the world of paganism or the world of irreligion and overt wickedness. This was the world of godly Judaism that hated Jesus. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Here is what is so striking about this, and and we have to try, I think, to, to find 
contemporary ways to help us feel this. God so loved those who hated him. Those who rebelled against him. Those who threw off his reign. This is a little passe, but I think we'll all understand it. Christian used to say this to me. Would you die? Would you give your son to die for Osama bin Laden? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about God loving the world. The glory of God's love is it's not just talk. The measure of all love is actions in the end, not words. We've all received words of love that were contradicted by the actions of the person. And we know how empty talk about love can be when the actions do not match. And so we move then to the action. We have the intensity of God's love, the object of God's love, and now the gift of God's love. Here's the action that makes it so real and so glorious. The gift of God's love is God's own son. His son. Something to note here, as you move into commentary, this will help you to see why I would say the theology suggests to me at least, we're, we're listening to John now, not to Jesus in verse 16 is because Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man in 14 and 15, Daniel 7. Moving forward now, he's simply identified as God's Son. Reading that in the light of the whole gospel, we know who that is. That's the one at the beginning who is the Word, the one who became flesh and dwelled among us, the one who has people wanting to pick up rocks and throw them at him because he calls God his father, making himself equal with God. It turns out that the son of man, this figure in Daniel, see when it says he like a son of man, it simply means he, he's, in, he's a, it's like a human being, descending on the clouds of heaven, coming before the ancient of days. It turns out that one who's like a human being is the second member of the Godhead, God's own son. And there is a foreshadowing there, a hinting forward of the incarnation of our Lord. But just really, the, the primary point here is the, the indescribable, unimaginable sacrifice. Who of us would give up our child? And to give up our child for our enemies. It's it's, it's an unimaginable thought to lose a child. Parents are never meant to bury their children. And those who have given a son or a daughter in the service of our country or maybe in the protection, the keeping safe of our streets would have, I think, a greater sense of this kind of sacrifice. Not that they chose it, but their child chose to serve in that way and they gave in that sense their child for a greater good. But that is the kind of giving that is going on here. God is giving his son. The text describes him as his only son. And that's crucial. His only son. This isn't one of the many sons. There are many sons of God. I'm a son of God. Many of you are sons of God. Daughters of God. The word translated only, in, our, in the older Bible, the King James especially, we know it as only begotten. That's a mistranslation. The word means one of a kind. There's only one in this kind or this category. Unique, one and only son. And we know who that son is and that's what makes this so deeply impressive and, and presses on our hearts and minds as we try to take it in. He didn't just surrender a son. He surrendered that particular one-of-a-kind son. 
gave him up for us all. As I've been saying this morning, my, my, my real desire, my real hope in this message, but in any message in which we would focus on the love of God, is that, that this would penetrate deeply. This would really become a reality, not just a theology in our minds, but love known in our hearts. God isn't just sort of an abstraction off somewhere, wherever that might be, in some other dimension. Unknown and unfelt. That you would feel and know the love of God. So how can we, how can we make progress in that direction? How can we grow in our ability to really know really feel, really take in the love of God in a very personal way? How can we be gripped by just how much our maker loves us? Well, we start in this passage by contemplating what he was willing to do. As we say, love is measured by actions ultimately, not by words. Romans 5, while we were still weak, That means we were unable to do anything about our situation. We did not have the power or the strength to deliver ourselves from our plight. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. The best person you know, it would be very hard for you to die for that person. We're just not built to do those kinds of things. We're wired to stay alive. The self-preserving instinct in us is very strong. You'd hardly do that, though maybe for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, that's when Jesus was willing to give up his life. In verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. I alluded to it a few moments ago, but just think, think this through for a moment. Have you had a relationship in which a person who was very dear to you spoke words of love, but by their actions broke your heart? Then you turn that around. Have you had a relationship in which it was hard for you to believe you were loved? With enough time, that love was proven over and over and over again until it finally penetrated. And you began to realize, you really do love me, don't you? In many ways, I've got to be careful. I'm going to choke up here. In many ways, that has been my experience in my marriage. To be loved by the one who knows me the best, and who knows me at my worst. It has taught me to feel loved, not just to think or believe with my mind that there is love out there somewhere. So contemplate, try to take in what God was willing to do, what he was willing to surrender He who did not spare his own son, Romans 8 says, but gave him up for us. It goes on to say, you know what it goes on to say? How will he not freely give us everything else? You think God's going to be stingy with you after he gave you the most precious thing he has? Why do we think that God is so stingy? And why do we think God is a grumpy old principal? The whole gospel shouts otherwise. Let me suggest just a few other ways to help us to process and grow to know the love of God more personally and more directly. There is what we could call the lesser to greater principle. That is, thinking from or arguing from the lesser to the greater. Jesus did this. That's why we can can use and embrace this principle in this way. Jesus said, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? You see how this is going? Just think now. This, this should help as well. This is a way to try to get at this. It's especially uh, easy for you as, who are parents and have children. Just think about your love for your children. What is in your heart for your kids? And for us now, we can add grandkids. And if my poor, broken, sinful, fallen heart can love like that, then how much must the love of God be? Because I have amazing love for my children and my grandchildren. I'm not saying I'm amazing. I'm just saying there's this great love there. And I think that's a poor, benighted, fallen heart loving like that. What must the heart of God be like? Another way we can do this is to be loved by someone who knows the worst about us. I already spoke to that. And I'm quite serious in saying that there was a point in my life where I just, it crashed over me. This is the meaning of grace because I don't deserve to be loved. I know, I know what a rotten person I can be sometimes. And yet I'm loved by someone I don't deserve, meaning my wife. And if that kind of love can be real and be felt, I can begin then to think this must be what the heart of God is like for me. Then there's something we must know. We sort of know it, generally speaking, but we notice that the Bible actually teaches it. We, can't, we cannot know the love of God in our own strength. Really, to grow and to come to a comprehension of the love of God takes a capacity that we don't possess naturally. Ephesians chapter 3, the second prayer of Ephesians. Just notice how this goes. I bow my knees before the Father that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that, and then there's a process that follows here. But what I want you to see this morning is we need the work of the spirit to give us a strength we don't possess. So what we need to do then is do what Paul did. We pray. We've got to pray and ask God to do this work in our lives. I spoke on this text in India this last visit in October. Or actually, it was in, yes, October, November. And I was convicted that I need to pray this prayer for myself and for Crossway Fellowship, for all those I love and serve in the gospel. I need to pray it regularly, so I've made myself get it down <laughs> on a list, in a book, it's going to remind me to do it because if Paul prayed this, he taught them, he served them, he was with them, he counseled with them and discipled them and he did all the things that we do, but he knew ultimately he couldn't accomplish this just himself. He had to pray and ask God to do some work. And how often I have failed to pray that God would do this work in me and in us. And so it's become a habit for me now to pray this prayer. Just let me quickly point out what this has to do with the love of God. He's asking this God to strengthen us in the inner being, the power of the Holy Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That means that Christ can take up more and more, he can more and more fill up our lives so that you, as Christ fills you up more and more, being rooted and grounded in love, that's the result of Christ dwelling in us, may have strength from the Holy Spirit, from the presence of Christ, to comprehend with all God's people what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You see that? If you're going to know this amazing love, <clears throat> you've got to have this strength that the Holy Spirit gives, and this increasing presence of Christ in you. We can't do it on our own. All right. Let's go back to John now. 
Final of the major points here from our classic text, the purpose of God's love. The purpose. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, what? Should not perish, but have eternal life. The purpose of God's love is life and not death. Life and not perishing. He goes on to say in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The purpose of God's love here is salvation, not condemnation. Please hear this. God did not send Jesus to condemn. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat the drum one more time this morning, but I won't do it very long. Why then do the people of Jesus have a reputation for being condemning and judgmental and self-righteous? Something is wrong with us. We have missed something of the heart of God and the purpose of God in the, sending, excuse me, in the sending of his son. He didn't send for condemnation. And yet we're so quick to want to find fault and we're so quick to point out what is wrong with somebody and we're so quick to want to pull away from them and to say, well, they're living like that, therefore I don't think I want to have anything to do with them. You know the reputation of Jesus who was, Jesus a, who was Jesus a friend of? Jesus is a friend of sinners, yeah. Now, you and I, you know what we do with that? Say, I'm a sinner, he's my friend. That's not what that means. That's not what that means. See, all us good church people, we're sinners and he's our friend, right? When they called him a friend of sinners, they were insulting him. They were not praising him. Because he was hanging out with people that they did not approve of and would not want to have any association with. They would rather judge them and condemn them. And Jesus said, folks, it's the sick who need the doctor. We all sit around and congratulate ourselves in our health spa. Or are we going to love the sick and take the doctor to them? Jesus didn't come to condemn. Well, I will get off my soapbox now. What condemns according to this verse or to this passage? What condemns? Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Well, I should stop there before we pursue the question I just asked. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Paul echoes that in Romans 8, doesn't he? There is therefore, after seven chapters of unpacking the glory of what Jesus has accomplished and made available for us, he declares, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's another thing that we good Bible-believing Christians seem to keep having a hard time believing. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, verse 18. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Condemnation here is for rejecting such a glorious love and a glorious gift. Now, the passage goes on to teach us something of where this rejecting comes from, really, I mean, there are lots of factors in why a person does not believe. There are intellectual factors. There may be familiar, familial factors, that is, family history factors. There may be peer pressure factors. There are societal factors. But ultimately, if you look at verse 19, disbelief and rejecting Jesus is rooted in the fact that people just love 
their sin. They love their rebellion against God. They are quite fine, thank you very much, with what they've got, and they don't want to give it up. This is the judgment, verse 19. The light has come into the world. Wouldn't that be, don't you think, naturally, if you're in the darkness, you would be just absolutely, overwhelmingly grateful that light has shown up? I mean, imagine yourself lost somewhere in the dark, and you begin to see a light coming your way. That's great. That's not always the case, is it? Because you also know that sometimes people are in a room with the lights out, and they don't want anybody in there seeing what's going on. Of course, your kids never do that, do they? Verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's great divorce, you will remember as people are given the opportunity to experience, we'll just call it for simple ter- in simple terms today, they're, they're given the opportunity to go from their, their miserable existence to, to paradise. Person after person after person gets there and does not like what they see and wants to go back to Egypt. It's a powerful, I think, image, metaphor, portrayal of the human heart and its love. We love our misery sometimes, don't we? Verse 21, true seekers will find. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. True and honest seekers will find. Whoever does what is true, a person who really has a heart to know and do what is true, will come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. The love of God measured by what he has done and who he has done it for. May God grant you to feel God's love today, to know God's love today. And if you need to, look to the one who has been lifted up so that you can live and know this love.